This is Ask a Biologist, a programme about the living world, and I'm Pauline Davies, standing in for Dr Biology, who is trekking around the rainforests of Panama, recording the sounds of animals to bring to you in a future programme. Today, though, we're honouring young people who've been given awards by the Association of Women in Science, and I'm delighted to have with me three of those young people. Tell me about yourselves. Farah? I'm 12 years old, and I go to Basis Chandler. The project I did, which I won the award for, was using nitrifying bacteria to clear out ammonia and nitrate from lake water to help the fish. Wow, Farah. And what's your second name, just so that everyone knows who you are? Farah Atohami. Okay, and Amanda? Hi, I'm Amanda Benedetto, and I'm 11 years old. My project was Can Roaches Learn? I ran roaches in a maze that I constructed myself that it looks almost like a pitchfork with it's a Y with another end point in the middle, and I wanted to see if they learned because I put food in one of the endpoints and I ran them through, and if they learned, Well, learning would be if they went in faster each time and found the food. But some roaches also went to different endpoints without the food and called that their favorite spot and went there faster and faster. That sounds absolutely fascinating and a lot of fun. Did you enjoy doing that project? Yes, I did. I like bugs a lot. (laughs) Well, let's see what Sarah has to say. I am a sophomore, 16 years old, at Xavier College Prep, and I did my experiments by creating an alternative emergency food product by using lentil rice, which is a traditional Middle Eastern dish, and I tested the antimicrobial activity of three different spices, cinnamon, allspice, and cardamom, on the shelf life of the EFP. And I ran it over six weeks and stored it at room temperature in my own house and tested And what did you find? What was the answer? Um, Cinnamon yielded the greatest antimicrobial activity, and the EFP rant, it's still going strong after six weeks. So I hope to test it in a food lab one day. So do you think I should add cinnamon to things that I've got at home if cinnamon is the right sort of flavor? (laughs) Uh, For palatability, sure, and for shelf life, it depends. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing to try, I think, anyhow. And... um, Together, we're going to be interviewing one of the most inspiring young researchers in the School of Life Sciences here at Arizona State University. Welcome, Susan Holacek. Welcome, girls. I'm very happy to to see you and some of you again. Welcome back. I just graduated in December uh, with a PhD degree in molecular and cellular biology. So I now I move from one virus lab to the immunology lab. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about my, research, about my research with you. So if you have any questions, please come on. But first of all, Susan, what do you think of the girls' projects? They are amazing. I mean, I already heard so many things about you. I unfortunately didn't have the time to be a judge this year, but I was a judge last year, and I, the, the projects are just unbelievable. I already know that some people in biodesign are very interested in your results, so if you're looking for any high school internships, yes, let us know. Yeah. You guys are welcome. You are starts. I plan on becoming a biologist, so maybe I could go Perfect. and do an internship. Perfect. And how did you think of your projects? Was it um, the school that advised you, your teachers, or did you all come up with them yourself? Well, I was always um, inspired by environmental projects, but 
Um, they, our school, they said our science fair project, they would only give us one week or a couple of days so we could um, get the idea. So I had to do it really quickly. So um, my mother and I, we found that idea online. Even through it looked very complicated, I thought um, I would take the chance to do it because I was always interested in environmental projects, as I said before, and I wanted to make a big change. I decided to choose it. And Amanda? I've always liked bugs ever since I was born. When I was a baby, I've always played with bugs. And when I grow up, I would like to be an entomologist. I've always been inspired by them. So every science fair, I've used bugs with my projects. Last year, I used mealworms and beetles and used their metamorphosis. But this year, I used Madagascar hissing cockroaches. Where did you get those? Um, there was a store in Mesa called the Reptile Center, and I got them there. Right. Buck each. So your parents don't mind you having these strange bugs at home? No, my dad actually <laughs> approves it, and my mom, she's kind of scared of them, but she says it's okay. Great project. And Sarah? I was watching a late-night CNN special on Anderson Cooper about the food famine latest and drought in Somalia, and they were showing the EFPs that they use, which is a paste-like substance that must be very unpalatable. EFPs, what are they? Emergency food products that they use in times of low food supply in remote areas, and so I got to thinking, and then I'm in the Accelerate Science program at my own school, so I started working on my project. Cool. Now, have you got some questions for... Susan? Yes. <laughs> Go on, Amanda. <laughs> What's the difference between the dengue fever and the hemorrhagic fever? Okay, so both are diseases, and both of them are transmitted by the same virus, dengue virus. Now we have four different kinds of dengue. We call it dengue serotypes, dengue 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, dengue fever would be somebody that gets bitten by a mosquito, so it's a mosquito-transmitted disease. The mosquito bites you, and then you may have a mild fever. What happens is that then maybe one month later, there's another mosquito that bites you with another dengue. Let's say in this case, dengue 2. Now you have both serotypes in your body, right? They are dengue 1 and dengue 2. So the probability is that you're going to get dengue hemorrhagic fever, like higher, especially for children under 15 years old. So that's what's the big, big problem. Mm. So you're obviously a specialist on dengue fever. So what are the consequences of getting hemorrhagic fever? So I'm from Peru. And when I was working there at the NIH, uh, we have the first dengue, uh, hemorrhagic fever dengue outbreak ever. So I was like overseeing like thousands of uh, people getting the disease. And there were a lot of children that get the disease. And there was even a six-year-old girl that died with complication. The problem with hemorrhagic fever is like when you're so young, you know, you don't have a lot of immune defenses and you can die like in four days. So it's a big problem. Was there a scientist in Peru that um, was planning on curing dengue fever like you did that inspired you? It was very interesting. So I, I did my biology degree in Peru and then I was invited to work at NIH, at a very young age. And when you're at NIH, you have to work with diseases that make an impact in your country. So being in Peru and dengue was a very important disease, although at the time we didn't have any hemorrhagic fever, you know, it was still very important because we didn't know what kind of dengue it was and we didn't know the genotype, so it has more going into this, in the genomic sequence of the virus. So when the dengue hemorrhagic fever appeared for the first time ever in 2000, you know, I was part of the multidisciplinary group that went 
and we look at the people that were, you know, the, in the hospitals, it was just crazy. So the, unfortunately here in the states we have the mosquito that transmits the virus in more than 28 states. And Mexico has dengue one, two, three, and four. So if you girls do the math, we better be aware and you know, have to have a prevention plan in place because when the disease hits you, there is no way back. And there is no vaccine, that's the problem. There is no vaccine for dengue. So you're gonna work on the vaccine? We're working right now. Um, I just, as again, I just finished my PhD. Uh, there are not a lot of scientists working with dengue in the States, and it's because we don't have the disease, right? There's only, I think there was an outbreak a couple of years ago in Florida with dengue one, but there are not many people. So in order for us to start like really working in the project, we need to get a lot of approval. We need to get the virus. We get to get the animal models or whatever it is that we need. So that takes some time. And I just graduated, so I'm doing my best. <laughs> And I've noticed that you're working with both molecular biology and advanced mathematics, and I was just wondering how you can integrate these two in order to predict the outcomes of dengue fever and outbreaks. So that's an excellent question, and I, that's something that I would like to advise to you. Right now we're in the world of uh, interdisciplinary work, so you girls, if you can like, team up with somebody that's, if you're interested in ecology, you, can, you should team up with somebody in molecular biology. See, these interdisciplinary groups are very valuable. So the way I started working with math, although I'm not a mathematician, was when I met an ex-collaborator, David Murillo. He already left ESU, but I'm still working with the math department here. He had a big interest in dengue. I have a huge interest in dengue. So he was doing mathematical models. I, was, I used to do molecular uh, biology in Peru. That was what I did for five years there. So we decided, okay, what if we can look into what are the variables, you know, what mosquitoes, and if there are different serotypes, as I mentioned, one, two, three, and four, if there is a predisposition for a specific serotype to be transmitted at a higher rate. Okay, so then that's where mathematics go in, into place, and you should see these complicated models that they created, and, you know, we're going to publish a paper, we're working on it in maybe three months for a conference. So it's, it gives me a different perspective, and I think that was a very valuable trade because that's what got me in my postdoc right now. Because my advisor, Dr. Bladman, he's very interested also in the immunology and the math part, and it's because of my background, because I'm not afraid of math, that's how I got the position. So it's very valuable for you girls to try to collaborate with other people in, in different fields. What's the best thing about your work? What do you enjoy most? Okay, this is great. Every day is different. Every day is a challenge. And in science, you have to be ready to fail. And that's how you learn. Is when you experiment, it won't work the first time. It may not work the second, it won't work. The, but when it works, you celebrate. And every day is different. It's not a sitting down in a desk and doing the same job every day. It's like you're in the lab, then you're in the computer, you're running your samples, you're ordering, you're planning ahead, you're writing a grant, or you're writing your paper, your results. So it's so exciting. Every day is so different. So I love it about it. So you find being a scientist is very unique and not boring in the job. So um, were there any hobbies that motivated you? to being a scientist? Well, I, it was funny because I told my dad I wanted to be a scientist, I think, when I was six years old. So he kept buying me these microscopes and science books and stuff. So I didn't have the time like to go into music when I was little, I wish, but I love painting. So, and I think 
being an artist kind of as a hobby it helped me a lot because when you're working with like tiny things it's kind of you have that art in your fingers you know you had a nice strike yeah. yes yeah since art is also my talent so like whenever I do science it reminds me of art since art is unique and it's your way. Yes. You can think of any idea you want. You can uh, turn it into reality. Exactly. It's, a, it's your way of expressing what yeah. you want. And you're going to be finding that art is it's a great hobby to have if you're a scientist. So if you weren't a scientist, what would you be? Oh, my gosh. When I was little, I was between being an astronaut who discarded that because I can know now. And I, w- I was very interested in archaeology. So the country where I'm from, Peru, is so rich. I mean, if you hear about Machu Picchu, those ruins are amazing. I've been there like five times. And it's so rich. The culture is so rich there that if you're an archaeologist in Peru, I mean, that would be great. That was my second choice. Sarah, what would you like to be? I do not know. My dad is in internal medicine, but then I've gotten an increasing like between integrating social issues and biology. So I don't know. I have a few years to decide. Right. Amanda? I just want to stick with being an entomologist because I think that bugs are interesting and they can transmit diseases and they can sometimes they can cure them if you get the right sort of motivation. Because I heard that there was a certain type of ant and if they took some of the venom out and, and ejected it into a person that was sick with something, I forget what it was, but it cured them. But they used the venom from the ant on one person, and then on the other person they added a few things to the venom to make it an antidote. Well, I think that's a fantastic motivation for your career in the future. Don't you agree, Susan? Oh, it's perfect because in dengue, as I mentioned before, it's transmitted by mosquitoes. So I, I have like one year of entomology also training. And I just went to Costa Rica last year, and that was very useful because I have to determine, you know, is this the right species of mosquito or not? So I had to use my entomology skills. So that's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all, Susan. Thank and you so much. Yes. It was great fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist. In the studio have been award-winning youngsters Farah El Tahami, Amanda Benedetto, and Sarah Saka. We've been chatting with infectious disease biologist Dr. Susan Holacek. The Oscar Biology podcast is produced at the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the Grassroots Studio, housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is a division of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Pauline Davies.